Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you this morning to turn in your own copy of God's Word or the Pew Bible in front of you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 6, verse uh, 12. Uh, so uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about some things that have uh, really personally challenged me. We've talked about how we need to see each other through the promises and power of Christ's gospel. Uh, we need to see that is that Jesus is with us now. He's sanctifying us now. Uh, he's bringing us to glory now. So the promises of Jesus' gospel are real. And we need to learn to see each other through them. And then last week we talked about how Christ's death, and specifically the sufficiency of his death, the fact that anyone can come to Jesus and be saved, teaches us that people are not, in the first instance, objects of Jesus' wrath and justice, but are objects of his compassion and love. And that what God desires, as he says in 2 Timothy verse 4, is what we should desire, which is that all sinners would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth and be reconciled to God. Uh, I think this whole concept of God's vision, that he sees us through the mercy of Jesus, he's working in us through Jesus' spirit, uh, he's bringing us home together, that it's uh, so comforting. I think it's very powerful. And, uh, and I want to learn to see everyone with Jesus' compassion before I see them with justice. I want to grow in seeing the ways Jesus is at work in the lives of the people I'm around. Uh, I want to get a better I want to get better at talking with Christians with a firm conviction that they also have the Holy Spirit. And uh, I want to see the world you see through the eyes of Christ. I hope you do too. Because in that light, there's one more piece to this passage that uh, has been incredibly challenging me for the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing to preach on it. And it's where Jesus takes direct aim at one of the main reasons that I don't see through the eyes of Christ so well. And here's the reason. I don't want to open my heart wide. Not all the time. In fact, if I'm going to be completely honest, there have been times in my life, even recently, when I know that Jesus said, Matt, you need to open up your heart wider to these people. And I said, no. Uh, if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you probably have the same story. You know that the Spirit through the Bible called you to open your heart and show love and welcome and compassion to somebody, often someone in the church, and you said, no. And as we've been seeing, that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying no to wide open hearts towards Paul and Timothy and also towards a repentant sinner in their congregation that needed to be restored. Jesus wants to fix that no. And as we'll see, he goes about addressing this by alluding to a part of the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed and that I think we try uh, not to think about too hard as we pray it. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. What you're going to hear and what we're going to explore this morning is Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian church, to Christians, to be reconciled to God. And you're going to hear Paul explain how to do that so that they can open their hearts wide and so learn to see each other and treat each other more like Jesus does. 
Uh, so let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 6, 13. Uh, we'll pray, and then we'll explore all of this by looking at uh, three points. The first is be reconciled to God. The second is working together with God. And the third will be uh, open wide your heart. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 through 6, 13. Uh, let's pray together. Or excuse me, let's read the God's word together. Uh, God's word, First, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live." as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as a children, widen your hearts also. That's Father, reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word which you have written and inspired and preserved for us, Lord. And Lord, we desire to be changed by it so that we can learn how to open our hearts wide to those around us. But Lord, we know that this will not happen unless your spirit gives us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe. Please do this, Father. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so the first thing I want to explore with you is Paul's surprising plea in verse 20 for the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. And also Paul's related plea in 6 verse 1, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For years, uh, I read these verses out of context as a call to non-Christians to be reconciled to Jesus. Uh, now, they clearly apply beautifully in that context, right? We do implore uh, non-Christians to be reconciled to God. Now is the day of salvation. Like, amen. That's 100% true. Uh, but in reading it that way, I missed what Jesus is saying here in the first instance. Uh, because while non-Christians are definitely who Jesus is talking about in the second instance, they are also definitely in the background. Jesus is not talking directly to them. They are not in the foreground. They are not lined up on the lawn in front of Christ as he teaches his lesson. 
we are. This is Christ's word to the church. So why does the church, or at least part of it anyway, need to be reconciled to God? Well, let me make a few observations here. First, we need to understand that reconciliation doesn't necessarily mean what we call salvation here. At least, I don't think it does. It can, but I don't think it does. And here's why. Uh, This is a rare Greek word in the New Testament. It only shows up something like eight times in the whole thing, all in Paul's writing. And at the core of its meaning is to restore or to create a friendship. So while Paul does use it in Romans to talk about how salvation makes us friends of God, he also uses it in 1 Corinthians to talk about a healed relationship between a husband and a wife. Uh, It's in 1 Corinthians 7 where this marriage has been damaged by uh, a wife's conversion to Christianity. And for whatever reason or reasons, the husband seems to view this conversion as a betrayal. Uh, Now, what exactly that looks like, Paul doesn't go into detail, but we do know that the husband does not appear to want a divorce. So it seems like the wife might have been considering it, not because she was mad at the husband, but because she wanted to act in a way that would bring peace. And Paul, in his very typical way, says, hey, if an unbeliever wants to divorce you, the reality is the church can't give them counsel that they're going to hear, and you can't stop them. So just do your best to part peacefully with them. But if they don't want a divorce, do your best to reconcile. That is to restore the friendship that's at the heart of all good marriages. I think, Hillary, would you mind going to the back, please? Sorry, thank you. Um, that's at the heart of all good marriages. And in that context of restoring a friendship uh, between two people united together in a family uh, seems to me to be the right context for hearing this verse. Uh, Because as we've seen, the problem in Corinth is a broken church family. Uh, There's uh, unjust distrust and bitterness between, uh, excuse me, unjust distrust and lies between Paul and Timothy. Uh, There's division, there's bitterness and unforgiveness against this person who sinned against Paul and Timothy, uh, this person who Paul and Timothy themselves have forgiven, but who some in this congregation refuse to forgive because they're offended on uh, Paul and Timothy's behalf. Now, what's amazing about this verse is Paul says that the divisions among yourselves, as bad as they are, actually aren't your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that you are that in dividing God's family, you've created a breach in your friendship between God and yourself. Uh, Now, here's my question to you. Why would Paul and Timothy think that in creating division among the church, they've created a breach between God and and, and themselves? And here's the answer that you're probably going to want to give because it's the answer that I always like to give because it's the easiest answer a preacher can give. Uh, It's because God just told them. Right? Maybe God had a revelation or a vision. They're writing the letter in. Jesus came or Gabriel came and said, hey, look, like I'm mad at them. Let them know. Oh, okay. I'll put that in. Um, maybe. But I don't think that's actually what's going on. Uh, here's another option. I think they were just applying the words that Jesus had already said to the church. Like we talked about at the beginning, doesn't Jesus say and hasn't he taught us to say and hasn't the church been praying since the disciples learned how to pray? 
forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, in that prayer, I don't think that Jesus means this as a one-for-one act. He's not teaching us to pray, Father, for every one sin uh, I forgive, forgive one of my own sins. Uh, That's obviously wrong, right? Because in all the parables about forgiveness that Jesus tells, God forgives us unimaginable debts, right? 200,000 years worth of debts. And we have to forgive big debts, but not unimaginable debts. Sometimes they're big, but they are in fact forgivable. No, the point of the prayer is clearly God have the same disposition of forgiveness towards us that we have towards others. As we are disposed to freely forgive, please freely forgive us. As we completely forgive, please completely forgive us. As we welcome sinners back, please welcome us back. And Jesus teaches us to pray this prayer because he assumes something. He assumes that we've already been forgiven, that we've already been brought into friendship with him, and that that friendship has already changed us and made us to show forgiveness to other people. You see, Jesus assumes our friendship with him just like he assumed the disciples' relationship with him when he taught them to pray. But the way Jesus puts this prayer tells us, doesn't he, that the health of that friendship with him is connected in real ways to the way we treat the rest of God's friends and those whom God wants to make his friends, which would be the entire world, right? The church is his friends. And who does God want to make his friends? Everybody else. And because Paul assumes the same context, he applies the same logic to the Corinthian church and he applies it to us too. The way we treat each other or our neighbors is not just between us. It's between us and God. And the refusal to show for the forgiveness that God has shown us harms our friendship with God in real ways. And this is why Paul goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 1, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And two things briefly here. First, to receive the grace of God in vain means to empty it of its power. And given the, uh, the background of the Lord's Prayer that I think is here, and also given the fact, as we talked about about a month ago in chapter 2, if you can believe it's been that long, uh, Paul has already alluded to the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? The guy who was forgiven 200,000 years worth of wages, but wouldn't forgive the debt of 100 days wages. Uh, I think the meaning of this, uh, of Paul's statement, not to receive God's grace in vain, is, is refusing to show that forgiveness to others. It's emptying it of its power to impact and change and bless the lives of those around you. Just like in the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? In the parable, the master says, I forgave you everything, but rather than turn and be generous to somebody else, you became greedy, angry, and bitter. You turned the freedom I gave you into slavery for somebody else. And I'm not being hyperbolic. The parable talks about debtor's prison, which in the ancient world was slavery. And why is this all so terrible? 
Well, on top of all the reasons Paul has already given, he now quotes Isaiah 49, verse 8. I'm going to read that again here. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So real quick, uh, this passage is not about God standing on the road calling for sinners to come to him. It is not God inviting people to find refuge in him. God does those things. The Bible has lots of passages like that. That's not what's happening here. This verse describes the time when God has reached out and has saved Israel. The favorable time is when God listened to Israel and answered her prayer for forgiveness. The day of salvation is the day when God welcomed his people back home after a season of alienation and estrangement and homelessness. It describes the moment when God brought redemptive mercy to those who were sorrowful and mourning and hurt and afraid and in need of help. It's a time when God opened his own heart wide towards his people, towards sinners, and brought them back to himself. And in quoting this verse, Paul is saying, you've experienced that. You've had the day of salvation. You know what it's like for God to listen to you when you cry out for Jesus and to have him save you and bring you to himself. You know what it is for God to open his heart wide to you on the day of salvation and bring you to himself. Why now that others need that from you, are you denying that power to those around you? Why is the church's heart closed to those whom God's heart is open? And why are you damaging your friendship with God and making them feel like they can't be friends with God? That's the problem God wants to solve. And so what's the solution? Well, the solution is to be reconciled to God, to have your friendship with him healed by reconciling, that is, restoring your friendship with this repentant sinner and with Paul and Timothy and with those whom you're divided in among the congregation. And here we're going to move on to our second point, working together with God. This will be shorter. I just want to look at two things. The first is, I think we really need to pay attention to the fact that we are called to reconcile ourselves to God. Because that's so unusual in the Bible, right? Normally, God reconciles himself to us. Normally, reconciling to God is not something we can do. That's just like how Paul talks in Romans. But it's not how he talks in 1 Corinthians 7 with his husband and wife. And it's clearly not how he talks here. Here, we face the necessity of response and responsibility. Now, I know as Reformed Christians, we want to spend a lot of time making sure that we get the order of who acts first and that responsibility always comes in the right place and 
You know, we can rightfully and biblically look at how our response is always a response to what God does first. Or in theological language, we can talk about how our response is a necessary, contingent, derivative response of God's prime efficient act. You can tell by the way I just said that I don't want to have that conversation because it's true. But however you put it, put it, the point is God wants us to understand that as his people, we have agency. He has given us responsibility and he has given us a will. And in the Bible, when God saves us, he tells us that he gives us a new will because he tells us in that powerful language that's so much more, I think, practical and impacting than the philosophical phrase I just gave. He gives us a new heart. A heart that can choose to love God or not. A chart that can choose to follow God or not. So all that to say, we need to recognize that the health of our friendship with God does lie in certain ways in our hands. Not salvation, not heaven, not glory, not the promises of God, but whether God stands with us in blessing or in opposition to us to prevent us from harming other people and sinning, whether we're united with him in happiness or there's a breach in our relationship, we do bear some responsibility for that. And we can act to bring healing to it. And the theological word that we use for that action is one you all know. It's also a biblical word. It's repentance. Confessing the sin. Asking for forgiveness and working to change the behavior so that the friendship between us and each other and us and God can be healed so that reconciliation, refriending can happen. Okay, so what does repentance look like then for the problem of bitterness? Because that's the issue here. Well, here Paul makes a powerful statement and gives a remarkable list to help the Corinthians see what they need to do. So let's just consider this list that Paul gives in uh, verses four through 10. I'm just gonna read it again. I'm gonna make one comment on it, but the list is so powerful. I think it just needs to be heard again. So chapter six, four through 10. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Whew. Uh, obviously, we would be deeply blessed looking at every single individual thing on that list. Uh, but since commentators don't see any uniting structure or principle, and I don't either, in other words, we don't know exactly why Paul chose each thing to put here or the why he put them in the order he did. Like, why is the Holy Spirit in genuine love in the middle? We don't know exactly. But we do know big picture what's going on. And so I just want to look at big picture. Paul has talked about being an ambassador for Christ. He's 
Christ's servant. And then he goes into what it takes to commend the reality of reconciliation, about what it takes to get people to say, this is something I want and something I'm willing to suffer for in Jesus' name. And he goes on to also show what it you have to go through or what they go through to make that reconciliation as easy as possible for others to believe, to believe not only that they can be reconciled in theory, but also what they endure so that they will know that they will be reconciled in reality, in practice. They endure danger to bring the gospel. They intentionally and with prayer seek to show consistent Christ-likeness when bringing the gospel. Uh, they preach the gospel and live out of the gospel as God calls them to. And they continue talking about the gospel and opening themselves up to those around them, no matter their reception, for the sake of their audience's relationship with Jesus and relationship with the church. And so Paul's overarching point is, do you see what we go through to make God's reconciling grace real, experientially real for you? But that's not all that Paul says. Earlier, as we read, and seemingly out of the blue, he reminds the Corinthians what Jesus went through. In verse 21 of chapter 5, where he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knows no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whatever we go through, whatever Paul went through, it pales into comparison to what Jesus went through. And I think Paul's goal with this powerful description of Jesus and his truly humbling list of things they endured for the sake of Jesus isn't to say, now you go and do it. Go and become sin so that other people can become the righteousness of God. Well, that's not possible. Uh, no, he's not saying like, hey, go experience riots and be jailed for Jesus. No, I think rather the argument he's doing here is what is called from the greater to the lesser. It's a classic rabbinic approach. Paul would have learned it studying at the feet of Gamaliel. Jesus, the, you know, the great teacher, used it all the time. And this is how the argument works. And my guess is you felt it hit you this way, even if you wouldn't have put it into these words exactly. Here's what Paul is doing rhetorically. Given everything that we go through to make God's grace as fully available to you as possible, given everything that Jesus went through to make God's grace as fully available to you as possible, don't you think you can suffer just a little bit more to welcome him back? Suffer a little bit more to show us some hospitality and generosity? Like, we're not asking you to become sin or to endure a riot or to pastor people like you, right? We're just asking you in Jesus' name, Jesus is asking you to heal your relationship with God by healing your relationship with us and this man by bearing the uncomfortable and very much real cost that you will feel of forgiveness and of putting real effort into actually being truly hospitable and welcoming and loving. And that leads us to our final point, which is open your hearts wide. That's chapter 6, verse 11 to 13. Uh, let's read those verses again, 6, 11 to 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. 
You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as a children, widen your hearts also. I think this is such a powerful ending to this rhetorically powerful plea. Uh, we've spoken freely to you, meaning we've not hidden our motives or spoken with double intent. We've talked plainly about our love for you and about the pain that you've caused us. We've told you that because we love you, even though you've hurt us so deeply, we still want to be with you. And you've seen that in our actions. Our hearts are open wide, right? You can't tell someone you have a wide open heart and have them believe you unless there's some actions there that reveal that it is, in fact, open, right? And then he says, the problem, you see, isn't that we've made it hard for you to love us. You're not restricted by us. You're restricted by your own your own decisions how to treat us live or not those are the that's your problem you can't put that on us it lies squarely in your own heart and then he says in return i speak as the children widen your hearts also and he says i speak as the children because what do little kids get told in various ways hey they were nice to you be nice back right? They shared with you. You should share with them. Uh, treat them the way they treated you because they treated you nicely, right? Doesn't that sound familiar? All the kids in the congregation? Yeah. Uh, so this, you see, is the way out. This entire sermon boils down to this super easy point. You widen your heart by treating others the way that Jesus has treated you, and by treating others the way that forgiving, loving Christians have treated you by enduring hardship the way they endured it for you, by sacrifice when necessary as they sacrificed for you, by forgiveness and kindness and mercy. You widen your heart by taking up your cross and following the Lord who was crucified, died, and buried for you who have the privilege of carrying his death around with you so that his life would be manifest in you and not empty of power, but powerfully life-changing. You say the way we learn to see others through Jesus' eyes is to widen our hearts by acting and speaking the way Jesus does. The way we heal our friendship with each other and with God is by acting and speaking the way that Jesus does. And that means, if you don't feel ready, that we need a lot of prayer. A lot of help from each other. And as one of my friends says, we need a lot of Jesus. We need lots of, I need lots of Jesus. Uh, let's commit to seeking Jesus. To bearing, the, and to bearing the cost necessary to open our hearts wide to each other. And to helping each other bear the cost by opening our hearts wide in his name, to those who are around us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, opening your heart wide to us. Please help us to respond by opening our hearts wide to each other. Uh, through your empowering spirit, uh, help us to take up our cross and follow Jesus so that uh, your wonderful grace would not only transform our lives by 
uh, deepening our friendship with you, but will be revealed in our lives and be used by you to transform those around us and bring them to Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.